All right, good morning. Just, um, I have a couple things here to, uh, that, I, that I wanted to just make mention of before we get started here. Um, uh, one is this, uh, it says, I just want to thank The Rock and praise the Lord for you for letting the Sheridan Worship Project gather here on Mondays. Um, the church has been a blessing, and so Monday mornings, uh, Sheridan Worship Project was, was doing a worship uh, time on Monday mornings early for people to kind of start their work week. They've taken a break until now, until after the first of the year, but they were very grateful to get to use the building for that. Um, also, too, from Sagebrush Elementary, Deer Rock Church, thank you for helping one of our students' families with housing at the beginning of this school year. Your support is greatly appreciated. So thank you, uh, everybody, for, for helping out with that. Again, um, as we do this thing together, it gives us opportunities to uh, bless the community, to bless others. Um, with that in mind also, too, we just sent a team of folks up to Lame Deer, up to the Northern Cheyenne Reservation yesterday, where they did a bunch of work um, on a building that's going to become um, a recovery center for people that are uh, struggling with uh, drug and alcohol addiction. We were able to send those refrigerators. We sent five mini fridges up there, so you helped purchase those mini fridges. And also, um, we bought a lot of, uh, of heaters as well. Um, and so, thanks again for, for being a part of this, and uh, you're a blessing. We were able to bless those guys up there yesterday. So, on the theme of Thanksgiving, I just wanted to do another one of my little, uh, little snippet things here. Um, and it's this, it is on gratitude and it's on Thanksgiving. Remember, if you remember last week, we talked about this, this idea of the, 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 the lost son and his older brother. And when his older brother came back home, he was angry, not happy that his younger brother had returned and that the father was celebrating or threw a big party for them, right? And he was angry and, and, and his response was that, that you've never given me anything, when we saw in the beginning of, of this parable that, that the, the estate had been divided between the two of them, and most likely he had received about two-thirds of that, a double portion as being the eldest son, but the problem with him was that he was resentful, bitter, and angry, and that blinded him to the blessings that were all around him. He, he couldn't even see it. All he could see was the wrong. And so when we live our lives, we live our lives from a place of just anger and bitterness and resentment when we let seeds of unforgiveness take root in our hearts, it leaves us unable to see the blessings that are all around us. And, and the cure for that, the, the solution to that is always uh, this. Um, it is always about gratitude. Um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I get, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving or gratitude, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So often we, we want to know the peace of God, and the peace of God begins with gratitude. And when we have an attitude of gratitude... Even when times are tough, even when times are difficult, it's that gratitude that is able to kind of give us a firm foundation to, to walk this life through and to, uh, to do it in a very different way. 
So, here we are. We are in Mark, and remember we are in Mark chapter 14 this morning. We're in verse 32. We're going through verse 52 this morning. We started the book of Mark last January, and um, I think we're going to finish the way I've got this mapped out. looks like we'll finish the book of Mark right before Christmas this year. So, if you want to open your Bible, turn your Bible on, whatever you do, grab a Bible from the chair in front of you if you don't have one, and we'll get started here into Mark 14, verse 32. I'll read it, and then we'll go back through it. It says that they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray, and he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And he, they, they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. (coughs) So, here we are, and and we're now, we're in the the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Remember last week, we we looked into the Passover meal and how the Passover meal has all of this this meaning and this uh, imagery and this practice that is pointing to Messiah and who he would be. And, and we talked about how the Lord's Supper, which we'll do here in just a little bit, was, was taken out of, of that, uh, that Passover meal. And, and, and so we, we derive that from there. But all of these things are, are a picture of who the Messiah would be and, and what he would do now. So now they've, they've went to a place to this garden that's called Gethsemane. And, and Gethsemane itself literally means the olive press. It's a, 
It's, it's an orchard, basically, full of olive trees. And in this place are several olive presses where they gather in all of this olives, and they press it, and they get the oil. Now, that, it's an interesting picture that we're looking at even with that, <clears throat> because um, the, the, the idea of oil is always, um, in the Bible, it, it's a picture and it's imagery for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and oil are, are kind of used, used together. And, and what's going to happen in this is that we see this place where Jesus enters into this spot of just intense um, struggle. In a sense, on the inside at this point, he is being crushed right now. Eventually, out of this, what do we see? John tells us in John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them that unless I go, the teacher doesn't come. Unless I'm crushed in this way and, and poured out for everybody else, when that happens and that comes and the oil comes, it's this picture the Holy Spirit would come and that the Holy Spirit would indwell the believer and that the believer would truly be better off in that time than the disciples were walking right beside him, but not with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and so... It's this whole imagery of this idea of the Holy Spirit is going to come and that Jesus is really in this idea of this olive press right now and on the inside he is struggling, right? Now let's remember who Jesus is, right? Jesus is not 50% man and 50% God. Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. He, he, is, he is the only one who exists like this. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah. He is the one who would come, who was the only one who was able, through his divinity, to pay the penalty for sin, but he had to do it as a human being because it was a human problem that he's coming to deal with. And so in this, he has this way of not just paying for sin, but also this way of coming uh, into a place of understanding with us and relation with us. He becomes relatable to us as a human being. So we see that he is uh, in Gethsemane. He, he tells his disciples, sit here a while while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, the, the, this, his intimate three there, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. So <clears throat> what we saw at the end of the Passover was that Jesus had sung. He'd sung several hymns called the Hallel, Psalms 116, 117, and 118, and now he's in the garden, and in his deepest trials, his deepest struggles here as a person, he's now entering into prayer. And, and, and so this is something that, that we've really got to take note of, is that worship and prayer really become the basis and the foundation for the trials and the struggles that we're in. That, that, that if we aren't laying a foundation of prayer out, then the, the, what, what's going to, is that we're not going to like the results over here. You, you see, it's really prayer that prepares our hearts for the trials and for the struggles that are to come. If we've started to push away from prayer, if we've rejected prayer, and sometimes we do, sometimes we get angry, sometimes we're just mad about the circumstances of our lives, and we begin to push away from prayer. 
But prayer is a huge determiner to the outcomes that we experience. And so Jesus is here and, and he's praying. And he's preparing himself for the trial that's to come. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, we don't like that. We don't like the idea of suffering. I don't necessarily like the idea of suffering. But there is something real in our lives about suffering. Suffering does something in our humanity. It, it, It does something that takes us to a deeper place. And if we approach suffering... From a right perspective, if we give God suffering, if we allow him to work in and through it, he can actually work things in our lives that that we can never meet. Imagine he'll meet you with a special grace in a place of suffering that apart from that, you'll just never know or recognize or experience. You see, it was even in his suffering that Jesus in his humanity is actually learning obedience. Now, now, we just want God to keep us comfortable, right? That's what I want. I think God should just be interested in my comfort, but God is much more interested in your growth than he is your comfort because God has a, a plan. God is doing something in our lives. God isn't just trying to keep us in this place where we're never uncomfortable just to keep us in the party all the time. He's actually trying to refine and change our character. He's actually trying to take us deeper. And this is a real struggle for us. And this is a struggle that Jesus is going through here. He says this. He says, my soul is troubled. It's sorrowful even to death, even to the point of death, he says. Now, now the word here for soul that Jesus is talking about is suke. It's where we get the word like psyche and psychology and psychologists. It's your, your soul in this sense is that, is that uh, it, it's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions, it's your personality. It's the very thing that animates your body. It's what makes you uniquely you. And, and your soul lives in this plane, in this temporal plane, and it will go on to live somewhere for eternity. Ultimately, our soul will either leave, live in the presence of God or in the absence of God. <clears throat> Ultimately, at the very end... When God writes all of the books and we see the resurrection of the dead, your soul will once again inhabit a body. Now, it'll be the upgraded version 2.0. It'll be much better than the one we have now. But ultimately, you see, we were created to inhabit a body. It's the way you were made. It's the way that we were. It's everything about the, who we are. You see, we were made basically kind of in a triune kind of a Thing, just as God is three but one, he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are flesh, soul, and spirit. Now, the spirit that, of God that is meant to be within man, that's the thing that died in the fall. That's the thing where God said, don't do this or you will surely die. It was the spirit that was inhabiting man that, that, that was broken because we trusted the tempter and we 
rejected God. <clears throat> At that moment, our relationship was broken, and that spirit basically was now separated. The, the spirit of God is, is the means by which we have communion or communication with God. It's the means by which he, he kind of speaks to us. See, if we look here and we see um, Hebrews 4, there we go. For the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If we go on, we look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is our triune nature. This, this, is, this is part of who we are, how we were meant to be. And it's the spirit that ultimately has to be brought back to life. This is the place where we're born again, right? In, in John 3, when Jesus is having a discourse with Nicodemus, he's telling him, you got to get born again. And Nicodemus is like, how do you do that? I don't know how you do that. It doesn't make any sense to me. And, and Jesus tells him, that which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we were all born into the flesh, but we were born into a broken place, a place where we had a soul, and everyone has a soul. It, to be a soulish creature means to be a nefesh. It means to just literally have breath in you. And, and, but our spirit needs to be quickened or awakened. And that's what happens when we trust Jesus, when we, when we believe on him, and, and, and the penalty for sin is paid on our behalf, the Bible says that we're born again, that the Spirit of God comes and inhabits us once again, and we're made whole or complete as we were meant to be. Jesus here is wrestling with this idea of his soul, and it's the only time he ever talks about his soul. And, and it's the idea of his person, his, his, who he is, and it's about, there's this question, listen to what's going on here. He says, going on a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you, for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus is wrestling with the very idea of even self-preservation here. It's like, maybe, maybe, if it's okay, if it would work, this cup, the cup of judgment, might pass from me. Maybe if there's any other way. And I think that this question is much for us. Not, not so much always, but, but it's a question that, that, that answers a big question for us. Because we live in an age right now, in a place where the, the culture and the world we live in is, is living in what's called postmodernism. And, and we would say this, postmodernism looks like this. It says there is no truth. And all truth is relative. That your truth is your truth. This guy's truth is their truth. Their truth is their truth. And my truth is my truth. But at the end of the day, it's all good and it's all true. There's a real problem with that. One thing is that, is that the nature of truth 
just never works that way. The, the nature of truth is not inclusive. The nature of truth doesn't say, yeah, everything's cool. Everything's good. You know, <clears throat> the nature of truth is exclusive. In other words, it looks like this. Like we could all go up onto the building, up on the top of the building, and, and maybe there would be some of us here who said, look, try, I don't really believe in gravity. I just don't. I don't, you know, that may be true for you, Try, that gravity works, but for me, gravity just isn't true, and, and we could say, okay, and if they said, well, I'm going to just go ahead and step off the edge of the building, their belief would have no power in that. Their, their belief would not override what was true. The truth would take over, the truth of gravity would take over, and they'd have a quick trip down to the ground. This is the nature of truth. Truth is just, it just is. So when Jesus is saying, might this cup be taken from me? He's saying in a sense, is there any, is there, is, is there any other, is there, is there another way? And the answer ultimately is no. There is not another way. Now, now I want us to think about that too again. If you're a Christian and you call yourself a Christian, then that means that you've trusted on Jesus for, for salvation, You've trusted that, that his death on the cross has paid the penalty for sin. You believe that he was scourged and beaten and nailed to a cross and crushed on our behalf, okay? So if there are other truths out there, I've got to ask you this question. What's the matter with you that you would pick that one? How come you're so twisted that that's the one you would want? This one where God, the Father, crushes his son. And, and, and what does that do to the character and the nature of God the Father if there was another way, but yet he chose to crush his son? You see, any good father, if there was any other way, would never crush his son in this behalf. And you see, this, this whole thing throws us into this, just, this place of like, wow, this is, this is rough. This is a rough thing, but you see, this is the reality of what sin does. When we look at the culture and you look at the world around you and you look at the depravity and the darkness that's just happening in this world, trust me, you couldn't take a 10-second snippet of it if you had to watch it all at once. It, it, would, it would drive you literally insane. I believe that fully. The degree of brokenness, the degree of horrendous things that are going on, and you see what it took... <clears throat> To remove the wrath of God from us and make possible a relationship with that was only God could do that. And this is a journey between the Father and the Son, and it's a cooperative journey, but the, the Son here asks if there might be any other way. And he prays this, not my will, but your will be done, right? Not my will. So, so the, the, the idea and the struggle of self-preservation is not a sinful thing in and of itself. As a matter of fact, I believe that this is where the parable of the talents, I, I believe it's a huge message that the parable of the talents gives us. One guy's given one talent, one guy's given five, one guy's given two, one guy's given five. <clears throat> they're, each, they're all supposed to go and do something with that. Master comes back, asks the guy with the five, how'd you do? I got five more. Great. Awesome. You're going to you faithful with a little, you'll be given more. The guy with the two, what'd you do? I had two, I got two more. Awesome. 
Good job. You've been faithful with a little. You'll be given more. Guy with the one, what'd you do with it? Man, I didn't know. I didn't really, I didn't know if I really trusted you and your character and who you were. So you know what? I made sure that I was able to just hand it back to you. So I went and I took the one that I had and I took it and I buried it over here and I'm going to unbury it now. I'm going to hand it back to you. You see, everything about him was just making sure that he was okay, making sure that, that he was all right, that there was not going to be a problem that, and he thought, he miscalculated, he thought that if he could just hand it back to him, that that would be enough. But if you remember, the master's reaction was, you wicked servant. How could you do this? You should have at least put it in and drawn in. You should have done something with what you got. You shouldn't have just spent it all on yourself. You shouldn't have just used it to make sure you're okay. I think that's why, why, why Jesus gives us the example of love your neighbor how? As yourself. Just treat them like you treat yourself, and everything will be good. Why? Because I'm selfish. Because I make sure I'm okay. But you see, this just living our lives of just making sure that we're okay is actually offensive to God. And so Jesus is about, he's wrestling with this because this is real and this is hard. And in his humanity, he's faced with this dilemma of am I really just going to go down? And, and it's in his soul or his personality. But his response is this, if it's possible, we always know that all things are possible with God. And so we always take all things to prayer, that foundational thing, and we offer up in prayer and we ask God to do many things on many occasions. Our health, our finances, our family, protection over family, to keep our kids safe. So many different things. But there are times where where those prayers, they, they don't always come like we want them to come. They don't always come back to us in the way that, that we would like. Sometimes we're faced and we're in the garden and we're being crushed in this place of, of suffering and struggle. And, and one of the keys to that is to offer up the final part in that prayer is not my will, but your will be done. And some people will tell you that that's almost a cop-out in prayer, but I want to say there's nothing, it's not a cop-out at all. That's putting your trust in God's sovereign plans of knowing and trusting that His way is the best way and that my, my scope and what I see and, and, and when I'm looking at the world, it's like through this little pinhole and that God sees the whole picture and He's at work in the whole picture and somehow he's working these things for good. And like we've said, right now it looks like the back of the tapestry. And it looks like just a mess sometimes with just threads and strings and all of this stuff going every direction. But one day he'll turn it around and he'll show us this picture, this beautiful tapestry. And we'll see how the thread of our own lives was wrapped in through and different things. And that God was at work and he was doing things that we never thought about or we never imagined. <clears throat> And so we wrestle with this idea. And you see, it's, it's this prayer of preparation that is really getting Jesus the foundation and the preparation for what's about to happen. You see, Jesus is about to stand strong in the face of just some real tough stuff. His scourging, his crucifixion, 
And, and from here, what we're going to see is that he becomes just steadfast moving forward. And I'm going to say he's so steadfast moving forward because of this foundation that he's laid in prayer. And he's reminding his disciples, he's telling Peter, you need to be in prayer. Stay awake. Don't sleep. You see, in the church is sleeping. The church isn't praying the way that the church is called to pray in this world. Remember, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their voice from heaven, and I will hear their prayers, and I will heal their land. So, so if we want to live in a different culture, and we want to live in a different world, and we want to see things heading in a different direction, there's a mandate for God's people to pray to gather, to pray, to lay down a foundation for what is to come. And maybe that doesn't come for 20 or 30 years, but that's been the cycle of things is that sometimes it takes a generation to change things around. We didn't get in the spot that we're in today as a world and as a culture. Uh, it didn't happen in 2020. It started a long time ago. It started many years ago. And it's because, it's because God's people have allowed the culture to disciple us instead of us discipling the culture. We got silent, and we quit praying. And we don't give prayer the, the, the importance. We don't recognize that it's the foundation to everything that we do, that if we start to do anything in this church and we do it apart from prayer, then we're just doing our own thing. We're just doing our plans, our way, our will. And remember, to, that God reminds us that uh, unless God builds the house, the laborers, they toil in vain. They're just busy. They're just doing stuff, but they're not doing anything that's really that effective. It's our defense, and it has everything to do with what happens next. And see, Peter and these guys are sleeping, and they're not watching, they're not praying, and the result that they get isn't one that they like. Peter's about to deny Jesus, right? And I think that a big part of that might just be because he wasn't able to lay down just that, that foundation. He's, he's operating in his own strength. He believes himself to be kind of worthy. And then, and then it's just this idea that, that we've got two natures. We've got these natures in us. We've got this flesh nature that still lives in me, right? And it's a mess. And it's all got all kinds of problems in it, and it's selfish, and it's got all of this stuff. But then the Spirit of God is living in us too. Which one is going to win the day, the flesh or the Spirit? The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you see, God will not speak to your flesh. He doesn't do it. God has pronounced that the flesh must die. He won't speak to it. The means by which God is going to speak to you and to I and to his people is through the Spirit. Romans 8.34 For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Whoop, what happened there? Oh, 
1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. How are we going to understand that? We're going to understand it by the spirit and only by the spirit. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of, whom, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or understood. You see, it's kind of like this. <clears throat> it's kind of like a radio. You can have a radio, and it can be plugged in, and the lights and all of the things are on on it, but if it's not tuned into the right station... Nothing, you're not going to hear anything. You're not going to get anything but static out of it. And that's what it looks like for the believer or the unbeliever. You see, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly. They don't understand it. Why? Because God speaks only through the Spirit. He doesn't speak through the flesh. So I, and I remember that. Like I said, I was, I was 32 years old when I trusted Jesus. So I remember very well what it's like. I used to try to read the Bible before that. And I would be like... Thou shalt not, 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 thou shalt not. What shall thou do? Um, it's just like, like you can't do anything and God is like killing everybody. I don't really get it. I can't get it. Well, the reason I couldn't get it was because the spirit of God wasn't, I, I wasn't tuned into the station. I hadn't trusted Jesus, the spirit. I hadn't been born again. I hadn't been spiritually born again so that I could even communicate with God. Now, you know what I see when I read this? I hear all those, do not do, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. I, I, that's my freedom. I recognize that that's freedom. Because freedom isn't doing what you want to do. Freedom is doing what keeps you out of bondage. And you see, for me, I had no clue about what, what it was to stay out of bondage. I was really good at putting myself in bondage. Um, breaking out in handcuffs and stuff like that, you know. Um, but God changed my life. And now I start to recognize that when God says, like, don't lie, well, what is he saying? He's saying stay free. He's saying don't put yourself in bondage. You see, because if you lie, if you choose to lie, and I don't know if that, you guys probably haven't, but I have. Um, when you lie, you got to remember who you told, what you told them, and you got to tell more to cover it up, and you got to live with the fear of being exposed for your lie. Guess what? You just lost your freedom. Now you're in bondage to that lie, and you're subservient to it. This spirit, it's called pneuma, and it's the supernatural contact with God. It's the, it's the power of the inner life. I got to get going here, don't I? I'm on a roll. Everybody's like, button this thing up. First Corinthians, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So, so this is a, an interesting concept that we see play out in the Bible. It's the idea that the, that the first is last and that the last is first. That, that it wasn't, that it's not the, the spiritual that's first, it's the natural. So we're born into a natural body, but then what has to become subservient to the spirit is the flesh. It, it, it's the flesh then, it's, it's the spirit that then becomes first, and it's swapped. 
So we're born first natural, we're reborn spiritual, and then the first becomes the last, the last first. What we see in, I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to actually read it just to save a little time, but in Genesis, we see that um, Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, for, a, for a blessing, and his father, when he goes to bless them, he's supposed to put his right hand on the oldest son, but he doesn't. He crosses his hands, and Joseph says, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. And he says, um, he put Ephraim before Manasseh in the blessing, and, and it's this idea that is that the, the last would become the first, and the first would become the last, that the natural would be subservient to the spiritual. We see it again in Jacob and Esau. Jacob, Esau is born first, but Jacob becomes the one with the blessing. Again, he came and he saw them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him, and he came the third time and said, Are you still sleeping? Take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And we see that, that, that basically now Judas, who has sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, is going to betray him. For that, for the temporal, he's going to betray the eternal. His flesh is going to run the day. And ultimately, it's all going to be for naught. So he comes, it says, and, and, he, and he kisses Jesus, and he, he calls him rabbi. What a rabbi or my teacher. And then he kisses him, and, and, and there's, they arrest Jesus. And we see this whole thing play out. You see, and when Jesus is wrestling with this, I want you to understand that it's not the physical death that Jesus is really wrestling with. It's the spiritual separation that he's dead. You see, for all eternity past, this relationship has never been broken. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, the Trinity is diversity brought into perfect unity. Within the relationship of the Trinity, love has existed always. If God is love... Then before creation, what was the object of his love? The answer is within himself. He has always had love because there's love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But there is about to be separation because Jesus is going to become sin, and the Father is going to turn his back upon him as his, the wrath is poured upon him. And now there's going to be separation that has never existed before. You see, Jesus is the only one who has ever truly experienced aloneness. You and I have felt alone, but we've never truly been alone. Jesus is going to experience aloneness on the cross. And, and, and so this is the this, this struggle that he's, he's going through. Jesus is strengthened for his trial, and he's going to move forward in strength. Peter is going to fall. And I think it was all determined ahead of time in prayer. Jesus was encouraging him to pray. Again, it's this idea, too, where Jesus, um, for it was fitting that he 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see, there's something about Jesus' human experience that was perfected, it says, in suffering. Now, Jesus was already perfect in the sense of his sinlessness, but there was something about his humanity that was perfected in suffering. And we don't like that. And there are seasons, I've been through a rough season, and we've experienced suffering like we've just never experienced, but God is faithful in that. He's been faithful to to move us through this, this period of, of grief. I mean, it's not like we're through it, but he's been faithful to walk it with us. And, and we've tried to do that in gratitude of being grateful for, for one thing, for what Jesus has done for us and what he promises to deliver us into, that one day he's going to make it all right. That one day we're all going to, that I'm going to see Callie and I'm going to hear, hey, daddy. Again. John tells us that a Roman cohort, which is roughly over 400 soldiers, were in this thing. They go to arrest Jesus. Peter, it tells us, it's not here, but, but we're told that Peter is the one who pulls his sword and he hacks some dude's ear off. Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest, Caiaphas, he hacks his ear off. Maybe a little thought for us, too. The sword... And we have the sword of the Spirit. Jesus ultimately takes that guy's ear and puts it back on, or he'd have been in real trouble with the Romans. But it was kind of hard to bring charges against him. They're like, hey, that dude just cut that guy's ear off. And you're like, okay, bring him over here. And bring him over here. And you're like, well, what do you mean? He cut his ear off. He's fine. Sometimes as Christians, we take the sword of the Spirit And we start running around hacking people's ears off with this. And Jesus has to come, and he's coming right behind us, hopefully putting ears back on and stuff. But when we wield this, we don't want to wield it like Peter, right? This this thing, God's word is so precious, and it has such a way of, of, of helping us. Every struggle in life is here. And so when we wield this, let's wield it from a place of grace and love and compassion and understand that, that God has given us this to wield in the world around us, and there's power in it. Finally, 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive again in the spirit. This is the way he... He died in the flesh. God died. He really died so that you and I could have life with him forever. He was raised back to life, yes, but now he's alive in the spirit. And the call is that you and I also would walk in that, that we would, we would walk in the spirit, that we would be a people who have been made alive, reborn into the spirit. Lord, we thank you that you know us and that you love us, that you have plans for us, that, that God, that these things are, that are they're above and beyond anything that we could ever imagine or think of. 
And we thank you that you went to the cross on our behalf. We thank you that you suffered in this place, that you allowed yourself, your, your soul to just be crushed and that the oil might just run out of you and that the Holy Spirit would, would come into this world and, and that you would empower your people to, to affect change in the world around us. So, Lord, may we do that very thing. May we do the things that you're calling us to do. May we not just run around doing a lot of good works, but may we do the works that you're calling us to. Might we have like a laser focus in that? Might we know what it is that you're calling us to? And, and, and may we be faithful to walk in that. And Lord, we thank you that, that you have given us the ability to, to be thankful, to live in gratitude, even in the midst of our suffering and our sorrows and our struggles. We thank you that, that even in the midst of suffering, that, that it's not just this thing that is about suffering, but that you're working in and through us, that you're changing us, that you're, you're forging character in our lives that wouldn't be there, that you're, 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 you're doing purpose in it. You're working in other people's lives even in the midst of that. So you're not wasting it. So God, we thank you that you don't waste anything. You don't waste our suffering, and you're not unconcerned or uncaring. Your word tells us even that you've wept, that you, that you cry, that you, you join us in that, that you've identified with us, and you understand some of the struggles and the depth of, of what we're going through, and that your promise is to be faithful to us at all times. For that, we're truly grateful, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.